Next driver KOMs, YouTube videos, and cookies don't usually figure in a retirement plan for a former professional road cyclist. But Phil Guyman's self-titled worst retirement ever is anything but normal. After 10 years of racing at the highest level, he's now forged a career as a Strava KOM hunter and sharing his love of climbing and cycling adventures on a popular YouTube channel. So far from slipping into a quiet retirement, he's busier than ever, but found time for us to share his love for climbing and some tips on how you get better at climbing and conquer a Strava KOM, as well as answering that really important question of what is the best cookie in the world. So sit back and enjoy this podcast. So Phil, you're well known for your love of climbs and particularly chasing KOMs. Um, what's the secret to getting a KOM? Um, I don't have much of a secret. I think the 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 way that I did it was I just raced professionally for 10 years and then put more work into KOMs than anyone ever had or should uh, who really competed at like a high level. Um, yeah, that was that was the that was the trick. <laughs> it was really hard training and racing. It's quite a big marginal gain, isn't it? Being a, a pro for 10 years. Yeah, it's not it's marginal at all. <laughs> Um, so what have you learned um, since retiring and you know, becoming well-known for chasing KOMs? Sure. I mean, is I it think... just about fitness and doing interval training or is there more to it than that? I mean, the start of it was definitely just like being, just having the, the years of, of, of all the work behind me um, and kind of being able to just, yeah, fitness, the main, the main thing to do was just to be stronger than anyone else who was really putting effort into Strava. Um, which just, especially at the time, like a lot of pros weren't really playing with it. Um, so it just kind of wasn't that competitive. And then even the ones who were trying, you know, they weren't using a speed suit and a super light bike. Um, so I kind of came from like, as a, as a pro, I was probably like top 30, 40 climbers in the world at that point, which like doesn't really pay the bills, sadly. Uh, but when you, when you go to Strava, it's, it's, it's just not that hard <laughs> from, <laughs> from where I was to, to where that was. Um, I definitely learned, but one thing that I was really surprised by, to be honest, was how, how little my fitness kind of trailed off. Um, I sort of thought, cause just as a pro, you're so rigid, you're so regimented. Um, you, you think that that's just critical. Um, and then the year after I stopped, I would, you know, I would, ride for fun. I would do the group ride. I would, you know, go for a KOM twice a week. Like I wasn't doing nothing, but I wasn't doing, you know, here's three by 20. Here's, you know, putting your feet up like the, this, the super dorky stuff that I'd been doing for, for five, 10 years. Um, I, I wasn't doing, and what I, what I did notice was because I think because I was, I was, I wasn't trying to be fast, you know, for seven days in a row, I wasn't training to, to have the super high level and do, you know, 60 race days, uh, for, for my kind of, for the YouTube Strava thing, I only really had to be good, like twice a week, a couple times a month. Um, and what I found for that was I could, that was, that was even easier. Um, and I, like the end of it, I was like, I just did 400 Watts for an hour. I don't think I ever did that before. But that's because I was just carrying around fatigue and, uh, and mixing intervals and doing, you know, as a pro, you also have to, you know, be able to sprint and do one minute. So you're training everything. Whereas like, I just started only training, climbing, only doing rides that I like. And for a minute, I got marginally better at it. Uh, and, and since then it's, it's, I've gotten marginally worse, uh, every <laughs> year, uh, which is fine. I'm 36. So, so how does it compare doing a, a Strava KOM now? Um, 
compared to racing up a hill in a you know event like Tour de France, are they equally hard, or is racing harder in a pro peloton compared to the Strava um, KOM? I'll start with I never did the Tour de France, but I but I'm sure that racing is harder. Uh, but the thing is, you know, it's the the competition is it's the the harder the hill is, the more it, it's just the competition who's on it. Um, so I would say like, if I'm going for a KOM on Alpe d'Huez, that would be harder than doing the tour de France. It'd be literally impossible. (laughs) So if you're trying something that like you can't do, uh, that's, that's going to be that hard. Um, having someone, having someone in the race, having, like having a wheel to, to push you or, or to, you know, be staring at, uh, is definitely like a motivator, but I've, I've certainly found like, I, I go hard for a climb and I'm completely empty at the end of it. And I don't think there's there's not much different feeling between that and the end of like a hard race back in the day. Um, okay. I'm just going a little bit slower. How how do you prepare for a, a Strava KOM effort? And what's your sort of um, the day look like in terms of breaking it down to prepare for that? On the day, I would compare it. I mean, essentially like an uphill KOM uh, would be comparable to an uphill time trial. So that's kind of what I would compare it more, more to a time trial than a race. Um for a race, you're thinking about, you know, the early breakaway, you're thinking about eating enough for a four or five hour thing, uh, for, for a KON that I'm like, you know, going out to do a video for and trying to really get my best performance. Um, I would probably do the same thing I would do for any uphill TT, which would be like, you know, a very light breakfast. Cause realistically, like your ride only has to be an hour and a half, uh, max between like the warm up and the actual effort, depending on how hard the climb is. Most of the climbs I do are, are between like five and 20 minutes. Um, and so, yeah, light breakfast, uh, kind of early, try, like try to do it early. So I don't get hungry during the day. Um, any, any breakfast I do would be like pretty carb based. Um, and then ba- basically you would time it where you finish breakfast, uh, three hours before the, you're, you're trying to start riding. So you have time to digest poop and then, uh, and then like a basic warm up. Um, my warm up routine has been the same for forever, honestly, where it's, I don't look at power. I just look at heart rate. Um, and what I'll do is I'll, cause it's about your body. It's not about your output. It's about what you can do. So that's why the heart rate is like the more valuable metric, I think. Um, cause different days it'll be different, but what I'll do is I'll, I'll start, I'll just ride easy for 10, 20 minutes, just kind of spin the legs. And then I'll slowly ramp up my effort, uh, until, until I see heart rates in, in a 10 beat increment. So, uh, so I'll go, I'll like, okay, I'll put a little bit harder and I'll see 130 and then I'll back it off for a couple of minutes and, and recover. And then I'll ramp it up a little bit to 140 and then back it off. So you're slowly kind of getting your body ready to go hard. Um, and then depending on the day, like normally the heart rate that I, that I would target in an effort would be in the 170, 175. So I'll try to like see 170 once in the warm up and then, and then back it off. And that's kind of just how my body's ready. Uh, and then five, 10 minutes later, I can go for it. So I'm never like pushing, okay. I'm never holding a hard effort uh, in that warm up, but I'm, I'm getting my body used to it. Um, and in that time, usually I can do that as I'm like reconning whatever climb I'm looking at. Um, so I can kind of kill two birds with one stone there. Yeah. And I let it rip. And, and when you let it rip on the climb, are you using, um, are you using data when you ride? Are you riding my field or do you use like a virtual partner to try and see where you are compared to the time on that climb? The, the, if there's anything I learned from, uh, from the retirement, it's the value of Strava live segments, uh, on the Wahoo, which, um, which I didn't, it's funny. I, I remember like I went for the first video I did was, was Palomar this outside of San Diego. Um, 
and you know, I, I go for it. I, I upload and I missed it by eight seconds and I didn't, and I was like, damn, it's an hour long KOM. And, wow. uh, and I was, I was like, ah, I just missed it. And I remember the comments on that video were like, how does a pro not know about Strava live segments? Cause I didn't know until I uploaded it. And my thought was like, how would a pro know about Strava live segments? <laughs> like, we do races. Like, I, you know, you're not looking at, I, I'm, I'm guessing some of those guys do it now because it is a super useful tool. Like if I was in a race, I would want to, I would want to have the graphic of like, okay, the climb's going to flatten out here. It's just like, it's like looking at the course map, um, which would be super useful. But, uh, but back then I, I did not. So I, I do use that now. Um, but, but basically it's, so it's a combination of that and, and kind of my perceived effort. Um, but really what I'm looking at is, is my, my target time for the climb. Uh, so say in general, say it's a 15 minute, uh, the current Caleb's 15 minutes, I'm going to pace myself to be dead at 14 minutes and hope that I'm finished by then. Um, and then if you have to run on fumes, the last like 30 to 40 seconds, that's usually doable. But that's basically what I look at is like, I'm going to, I'm going to have an empty tank at a time that's faster. Everybody's done it before, uh, and, and hope that's enough. Um, and then I'm looking at the gradients on the, the live segment to see like, okay, here's the steep part. I definitely want to push harder here. Here's where I can recover a little bit. Um, here's a part that's flat. So I'm going to save it. Uh, and I kind of just do that as I go by feel. And I imagine, you know, fairly soon in the segment, how you're feeling in terms of how you're likely to beat that climb. And, and if you're not likely to beat it, do you back off and save yourself another effort like the next day, perhaps, or do you just give it your full beans and see what you get? Um, it, it depends on, on the climb. If I'm, if I'm generally like, if I, if I traveled somewhere and I've got a, you know, camera person or whatever, like I don't really have the luxury of let's kick it to tomorrow. Um, and, and second place is fine or third place, whatever, like the, I, what I'm, what I'm looking for isn't the, the result as much as putting in my best effort. And my, if I, if my best effort is, is, you know, a minute down, then, then so be it. Um, so yeah, I haven't had to like completely ax, uh, anything mid ride, uh, in the videos when I'm out like training and I've, I'm going for a KOM in my neighborhood, essentially like that, consider that more training if it's local and I'm not kind of filming something. Um, and in those cases, for sure, if I'm like, if my body's not, not feeling it, I'll back off or if I'm not going to get like, you know, the result I'm looking for. Um, okay. but generally it's just like, here's, here's the process. I'm trying to do a good workout, uh, you know, fingers crossed that, that something else happens. Okay. Do you know how many KOMs you currently hold and which is the toughest one you've currently, uh, claimed? Ooh. Um, no, I don't. And it's, it's hard with, with Strava knowing how many you have, cause there's, you know, there's segments within segments. Okay. Yeah. So like a lot of climbs you go for and, you know, I get the KOM from the bottom of the top, but I'll get 60 in the middle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like that does, I just don't think that counts. No. Um, cause people make too many segments. Um, so, so no, I don't really know how many legitimate KOMs I actually have. <laughs> um, but, uh, what was the second part of that question? Sorry. I lost it. Uh, which, which is the toughest one you currently oh, uh, claim? The, the, the toughest one. one, the one I like to talk about is uh is Mauna Kea um okay. and so this is the big island of Hawaii uh I did this one on New Year's Eve of 2016 so this was my last day technically as a pro I was still under contract professionally uh to the end of that year and I was supposed to have a job I had like a job lined up at a sports agency um for to start in January and that that guy ended up uh either quitting that job or getting fired I don't really know what happened but I I ended up not getting that job but, um, I, at the time I was like, 
I had been on Strava for a couple months. Um, I'd been a pro for 10 years. It was like really emotionally difficult to kind of let that go and move on. I had no choice. Um, and, and then I ride up the biggest climb in the world. Uh, and so it's from, from the beach to, sorry, I'm going to do it in feet. Maybe you can convert to meters. It's, it's from the beach. You dip your, your bike in the ocean, uh, at the beach. And it was like a beautiful sunny day, 70 degrees. Um, what's that 30 Celsius. And then you go up to this volcano. Uh, finally there's like, you're up a highway and then you make a left turn onto a, uh, this dirt road. That's like completely impossible to ride on a road bike. I like, I had, I was, I was running with it on my shoulders at now we're at like 14,000 feet. Wow. Um, there's a wall of snow along the side cause it was, you know, crazy high altitude. There's an observatory up there. Um, and, uh, I got the KOM by two hours. I was just under five hours of previous. It was just like, it was more will than anything else, but it was the coolest ride I've ever done. And I'd never heard of it until like a week before. And there was this moment for me of just like, there's a lot of cool stuff to do on bikes. that isn't bike racing. Uh, the ride got, you know, crazy response on Strava. Um, and, and I was like, there's a lot of value to be had for adventures and pushing yourself. And there's value for my fitness. That's not like, in this European racing world that wasn't really suited to me <laughs> and, was, and was pushing me out. Um, so that was kind of like the beginning of, of my whole next chapter. I was like, wait, there's, there's something here. And I didn't have it on video. I was like, you know, Instagram live the whole time and, and uh, kind of enjoy myself. But uh, I got, I got to go back there and film it, but it kind of showed me like there's stories to tell um, and there's a place for me in this sport yet, uh, which gradually turned into a uh, worst time than ever. Okay. That's nice. Uh, way to transition from your time 10 years as a pro to becoming now a full-time youtuber i guess mm -hmm. and you, you call it the the worst retirement ever so you can expand on what you mean by that worst retirement ever and and how that all came about yeah the the angle was was really that like i kind of the the beginning of it um so it was uh end of like mid end of 2016 i i knew i was gonna retire um i don't like the word retire when you don't have any money saved up, <laughs> um, but that's the word they give you uh, when you stop racing professionally. Um, so I, I knew I was going that direction. I was going to get a job, um, and I just started. I'm not even sure why. Oh yeah, I was. I was putting. I was hosting a fondo. I was. I started doing this event uh, in Malibu, and it was my my business partner for that was like, you should get on this Strava app. Like you should start, you know, engaging with an audience here. And he just purely was just wanting to, you know, sell entries to to our event. Um, so I, I get on there and I think like the first ride I did, I did the group ride in LA that I like to do, which rips up this little Canyon in Hollywood. Um, and of course I set the KOM for, for this climb that I'd done a few times that I'd never done it on Strava. Um, and the, the person who had the KOM previously was the, the name on there was, was Thorfinn Sasquatch, uh, which is, was a fake name and. And I guess he was just like the Strava villain in LA and no one knew who he was. And he had the bottom of every hill, the top of every hill. And like a lot of, you know, pretty competitive racer types were not able to beat him on any of it. Um, and then someone kind of did the detective work that he was the, to find his actual name. And it was a guy who was banned for doping from like masters nationals, uh, oh. like an age group thing in, in the U S so this like perfect, storm for me where like i'm i'm a world-class climber living in la and there's this like guy who just the cycling community in the city was just like very annoyed at 
um, but no one could topple. And I have all this fitness and nothing to do with it. Um, and I, and I just noticed like I would, I, I got that KOM and my, my phone blew up. Like I had just won the big race, <laughs> like I was getting more text <laughs> messages from wow. that. Like, Oh, you got the, you got the right. Nichols Canyon. And I was like, you know, I want to stage a tour of San Louis a couple of years ago. <laughs> Who cares? Um, but, but my thing was like, if, you know, if people enjoy it, then it's something to respond to. And, and that essentially turned into, to all of it. So I just, at that point, it was just every, I would do a rest day and then I'd go for a Thorfinn KOM and repeat and I could get them all. Um, and over like, honestly, like he had hundreds of KOMs and it took a couple of years to like slowly pick away at them. Um, but that kind of developed a following on Strava and cycling tips were an article about it that was widely shared. Um, and it was just so, so perfect for me because my career, uh, was, I, I came into racing like right when kind of Lance's downfall happened and the, the domestic scene that like the, the U S there was a vibrant racing scene in the U S and like the early two thousand. So like when I started, you know, the guy who won the Redlands classic was making six figures and there were a lot of pro teams and a lot of guys, I think there were like 12 teams in the U S paying guys a living wage. Um, sorry, this is all in my books, but, uh, by the time I got, I, I won Redlands in 20, uh, 2012 for the first time. And, my salary was $18,000 that year. My team folded. So I only got half of that. Um, so that was like, I like doping really stunted my career and, and my chance to succeed. Um, and just all the sport, the, the sponsors went away and there were fewer teams every year. And it was just, I, I likened it to like climbing a ladder as the rungs were getting chopped off underneath. Um, and then I go to Europe where like, I finally get on, you know, Garmin Sharp, but I was 26, which is pretty late to have a real shot at that. Um, politics didn't do me any favors, uh, with a clean tattoo and the world tour. And like, they, they signed me, they had a lot of PR nightmares. So when they picked me up, it was, they had just had, uh, Danielson and Zabriskie and Vandeveld that had just served their like off season suspensions after catching Lance and, uh, Hegedal had admitted that he had done it, uh, you know, years before and the statute of limitations was up. Um, but he'd won the Giro in between. So like JV kind of had a, a mess. And here's this like American guy who was doing pretty well, uh, who had a clean tattoo and Vodder's like, I realize now he like had to sign me, um, just to, to shut everyone up in a way. Um, but they never took me seriously and they didn't, they didn't want to sign me and they didn't really like me was what I noticed too. So like the directors, I just got shitty races and I never really had a great chance. Um, I'd be, you know, on the list for this race and pulled off it two days before and sent somewhere else. So like, you can't really train for that. Um, so I kind of had a few years of that and then I was just like, all right, forget it. I'm 30. Uh, you know, I can't, and you know, and and also like barely paying me, I got world tour minimum my first year on that team. And then 65,000 the next year, uh, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it's also, you know, try to keep an apartment in LA and apartment in, in Girona and, uh, you know, paying for organic food, <laughs> uh, just athletic, like the whole, the whole athletic lifestyle I was chasing, like I wasn't going to get it. So, um, so it was easy to move on from that. And then here's this doper who has all these KOMs and I can handle that. Here's this little thing. We're like, okay, here's the, the dopers got me the last 10 years, but okay, yeah. here's this little corner where like, all right, I can do this. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I did, it was, and it was fun. And like, you know, to me, like Strava, it's a social media platform. It's not, it's not a race. I've done races. Um, there's, there's no reason 
there's no reason to care about the KOMs, which is the irony of doping for it. Um, th th you don't get anything for a KOM. Yeah. Uh, so like the idea of someone cheating for it or doing whatever he was doing uh, was was hilarious. And I, I just, uh, it, it was it was a fun thing to mess with. And quickly since, so my, my channel turned into, I go for doper KOMs. That was the first year I went for a Danielson one. I went for a Chris Horner one. I went for a Levi Leipheimer one. Um, and I, I didn't have, I had level certain level of success with those. Um, so that's one like, okay, you know, Leipheimer got this KOM in Boulder, stage seven of the tour of Colorado uh, with, you know, a bunch of energy bars in his pocket and two bottles on his bike. And I go for it with a speed suit, completely fresh. Um, I actually didn't get that one, but that was, I found like I could kind of compete against those guys. If I did a pure uphill time trial recovered and they happened to get a KOM uh, during the middle of a race or something or a, a big workout block. Um, but obviously like I'm not better at peak dopers than, you know, their whole time. Um, eventually not, didn't take too long before I realized like, I don't want to make my post career about doping. I don't want it to be about revenge. I didn't like the negativity of it. It was, it was the kind of thing that worked. It got attention um, pretty quick. I was like, I just want to go for adventures and fun climbs that I want to do that I think people might want to see. Um, so that's kind of been the last few years. It's just like, I want to see what I can do on this climb. And people would kind of message me like, Hey, here's a cool one you should check out in, you know, in, in Tennessee or, or whatever. Um, so like less Eurocentric and more, more American, but uh, just cool places and not like kind of just rejecting the whole pro cycling and, and doping culture that uh, rejected me first. <laughs> it sounded like a sort of redemption almost. So you're what sounded like a bit of a crappy experience being a pro after reaching that, that the dream job for a lot of people and finding it wasn't actually um, paved with gold and it wasn't the dream experience you hoped it would be. So maybe a bit of redemption um, proving you're you know, one of the world's exactly. best climbers on Strava against exactly. these dopers. So. I was I was able to do what I wanted later. The the dream that the dream that I end up that I'm kind of living now and it's still a lot of work, but is is something that, like I wouldn't have imagined uh, when when the pro sport was kind of kicking my butt. Yeah, um, yeah. And now you're a successful YouTuber, over hundred thousand subscribers, and you're not only riding these KOMs, but you're filming them as well. So you're producing content around your love of climbing and not just climbing, but adventure as well. So what's it like being a a YouTuber? I, it's a, uh, it's fun. It's, you know, I get to do it on my own schedule. Um, it's, it's an insane amount of work. Um, so the, the, the business model now, like, you know, the YouTube revenue is, is like kind of a myth. Like, you know, you get, you get checks, but it's not what people think, um, until you have like 10 million subscribers or something. It's one of those, like, yeah, I think, I think last month I got like 1400 bucks, which is great. Uh, but you know, I think I've made 600 videos <laughs> to, to get that. <laughs> Uh, so like on a per basis and you look at the cost, like YouTube revenue isn't the thing. So, but yeah. what I, what I was able to do was I had, you know, I had sponsors from racing. I had relationships with brands. Um, and I kind of carried a lot of those over into, you know, a lot of guys do these ambassador things and they do events and stuff like that. And, and so instead of like me going to, to Grant Fondo's and doing gravel racing, uh, I just got the same kind of sponsorship levels to, to create content. Um, so since then, I, I make all my own deals. Um, I, I write all the contracts. Um, I do all the outreach. So it's like, that's kind of a full-time job. And then editing is kind of a, a fair bit. Uh, I outsource as much as I can. I have some help uh, pretty often, but 
but not always. And I find a lot of times it's just easier to just have the selfie stick and control it. Um, but, but for the most part, it's, it's been, it's, it's just a complete joy and, and a luxury that I kind of like get to, like, I don't have a schedule. I don't have like, no one ever tells me what to do. I have to do a lot, <laughs> but it's, but it's what I want, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a really great place to be. And, um, it's quite a, a trend for, you know, retired, uh, cyclists now, especially in the gravel scene, becoming mm-hmm. a sort of own content creating machines almost and having their own sponsors and their ambassadors for different brands. And it sounded like you were kind of doing this before that became as popular as it is now. So setting the, the sort of mold for that sort of, uh, a growing trend for influencers, whatever you want to call them these days. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I, I, yeah, I do. I do want to think that like, I kind of created a business model that's, that's somewhat replicable. Like I don't think going for KOMs on Strava, I don't think there's room for a bunch of guys to do that, but I think there's room for, I, I guess one, another take that I had from, from retirement and, and what I'm doing now is that pro cycling in a lot of ways is like kind of a poor way to promote a brand um, that for, you know, I know what they charge for a pocket spot. Um, and it's, it's excessive. <laughs> um, and, and what I could do for that same amount of money and what, you know, a gravel racer could do, uh, or for much less money is, is really just a lot more in a lot of cases. So like brands, you know, they, they need to be in the tour de France, uh, to, to be, you know, viable, I guess, I think that's, that's still a thing. Um, or they, at least they, they think it is in a lot of cases. Um, but, but I, I noticed like as a pro I rode, I mean, I probably rode for five or six years and I didn't ride with anyone who bought their bicycle. Um, like you ride with pros when you're a pro and now like I ride with people who buy things <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> it's a very different, uh, very different. Like I do the group ride in LA on Sunday. It's kind of my favorite part of the week. Um, and, and no one on there gets a free bike, but me for the most part. Um, and that's, that's valuable to brands. Um, and, and social media is valuable to brands and the, the pro teams kind of until recently, like didn't do a good job leveraging that. Um, so we're seeing a lot of it. And I think the riders who kind of realize that or are willing to do this extra work and maybe like have a down year, uh, to do that are going to see some success, uh, in, in going their own way. Uh, if they have that little bit of hustle. Okay. Yeah. Um, so climbing, definitely your, your thing, your USP. Have you always loved climbing? You've always been good at climbing. Did it come naturally to you? Um, yeah, I think so. I was like always, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a skinny guy who, who has a fair bit of power. So kind of like a good, a good build for, for climbing. Um, when I got into, I started racing, I was in college in Florida, which is like the flattest place in the United States. Um, and I thought I was a time trialist and I just, I didn't know about climbing. Um, and we remember I went to this, I went to a, like a, a few big races that year. And the, one of them was like the tour de tuna in, in Pennsylvania was like one of the bigger American stage races back then. And, uh, and I was just, I think it's like my second year racing. I was like 12th going over the climbs. Like I was in the front group going over this hill and I was like, Oh, I guess I'm a climber. <laughs> um, I just had no idea. Uh, so it was a combination of like liking it and then being good at it. And, and now, yeah, it's just my favorite thing to do. I don't know what it is about, uh, about riding uphill, but I, yeah, I, I can't live without it. Um, and, I, and I move somewhere with the craziest hills in, in the U S so. Okay. So uh, I, say, I see from your Strava, you do a lot of hilly rides ways. You don't, you don't, you go, you go out of your way to find climbs rather than avoid the climbs, don't you, by the looks of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not interested in flat 
flat roads at all anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's just and and where I live in in Malibu, there's just there's just so many awesome hills uh, in between. I kind of live between Hollywood and uh, and Malibu, and just each of those just crazy cluster of of weird neighborhoods and hills that that go nowhere and are surprisingly empty for being really close to the city. Okay. Uh, so it's a good playground here. What makes a good climb, in your opinion? Is it steep? Is it kind of long and steady? Hairpins, straight, flats, or you know? Love a good switchback. Um, in general, like you know, steep is fun. I don't want it to be so steep that I have to stand or, or grind up it. Um, so really, like, I guess my favorite kind of climb would be like in the seven percent, where like I still have the gearing for it. I can I can okay. choose the gear I want. Um, if it's you know a sustained fifteen percent, like no one really enjoys that. But I you know once in a while. Um, but I don't want to do that all day. So the ones I do around here, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, my, my thing is to do five hours and, and 10,000 feet. So like a little over 3000 meters. Okay, that's yeah. like, that's kind of try and do that once or twice a week. And that's sort of my endurance day and, and enough to, to stay in shape. Ouch. <laughs> that's quite a lot of riding. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's not that hard if you have enough hills, it's really just about not riding flat roads at all. Yeah. Okay. And um, I, I assume you got some sort of super tricked out weight weenie lightweight bike then. Oh yeah. Yeah. I have a, <laughs> so factor, uh, factor is my sponsor. Okay. Um, I had the Shimano components. So, uh, for, I have a few different bikes. The, the Ostro is factors like aero bike. So that's probably what I do most of my riding on. Um, and then I have an, an O2 disc that I've actually had a few years now, that's still fine. Um, that I do, I do a ton of training on. Um, and then for my, uh, for my KOMs, my videos, at least, yeah, up until very recently, I used uh, the rim brake, uh, VAM. So the, the factor VAM is like a, it's same geometry, but just like a kind of fancier, lighter, stiffer carbon, um, just like a more high end frame. Uh, and so I built that up with just, you know, the, the dorkiest parts I could sort of, uh, get to and tubular wheels and that kind of thing. So I'll do my videos on, on like a tubular kind of race setup. And then everything else is just kind of tubeless training. I, I do have a new uh, factor frame that I'm going to reveal. I'm doing a, a charity thing uh, in the middle of May. So they sent me a cookie bike uh, okay. for that that cool. I, I'm going to share soon. It's, we're getting that built up now. I look forward to seeing that. So do you, how important do you think weight is on the climb? I mean, lots of people obsess about weight, like both on the body and the bike. I mean, how important is it? Is it the most important thing or is it not as important as people make out that it is? I mean, it, it depends on the grading of the climb. I think, uh, like under, under 20 miles an hour is, is where I go and sorry, I'm standard. I just, once I, once I, wherever I live, that's the, that's the metric I go by. Um, so here it's miles and feet. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, I think aerodynamics certainly matters, but what's, what's interesting to the group ride that we do on, on Sundays in LA, it starts up this climb. Um, and the, the KOM is like nine to 10 minutes, uh, is, is like a fast time. And, and I rip up this climb every Sunday for, for the most part for like the last five or six years. So I have a crazy amount of data <laughs> on this one Hill that I do, you know, it's, it's not exactly a time trial cause there's other people involved, but, um, yeah, I still, it's, it's only, I think it averages, uh, 4%, but there's a very steep bit at the end. Um, and I, I go faster, even as a 4%, I go faster on the super light bike than the aero bike, which is like a two or three pound difference. Um, but uh, I, I thought the aero bike would be, I would have thought the aero bike is faster on a, on a 4% gradient, um, but it's not. And then you get it, then you realize too, from that amount of data, just how much conditions are everything. 
okay. on Strava and like not even wind, like air pressure and, and weird stuff like that. Like an overcast day, a day where it, you know, if it rained overnight, you're significantly faster. Like my fastest times are not at all correlated with my best Watts <laughs> on that climb, uh, which is really interesting when you just go back and look at it. It's just like, wow, this is not at all what you would think. Um, but like, obviously body weight, fact counts more than bike weight so here's you know i i weigh 152 pounds this morning um and so you could shave a pound off your bike which is an extra couple thousand dollars uh or it's it's your own body so i i don't love how how you know i don't want people to get eating disorders um weight was like a thing that i saw people fight when i was racing and and it can you've got to do what your body needs to do um but uh and, and you can definitely like be too thin and not be healthy and all that stuff but but yeah weight is uh it definitely matters power to weight is what climbing is how do you manage to keep your weight off when you got a, i mean you're famous you love cookies uh the, well that's part of it part of the the cookie thing came from uh i i love cookies but i'm a healthy person so i'm not going to eat a bad cookie so i'm selective with my cookies okay. so that's kind of the thing is like i'll have a cookie once a week but it's an incredible cookie Okay. Uh, because I'm only going to have it, uh, once in a while. So it's that, that kind of has been the thing. That's the same thing with, with food in general. Like if, you know, if you're going to, I try not to eat too much, uh, you know, red meat, I'm trying to be, you know, good for the environment. So, you know, once a week I'll have a steak and I'll respect it. Um, right. and I'll, I'll do a good job and, and, you know, be careful or, or like go to a restaurant and, you know, get it well-made. Um, so cookies, yeah, it's the same thing. Uh, I, no, I don't eat, I don't eat 60 cookies a week. I eat one incredible <laughs> cookie a week. Um, that's, that's the angle there. Yeah. So it's a quality over quantity. Definitely. Exactly. And, um, I was going to, I was going to ask you that question. Yeah. But what's your, what's your favorite cookie? Um, I mean, I'm a classic, like a chocolate chip, uh, person. And then there's, there's a few places in LA that, that make top notch cookies that I, I probably have three. And then it depends on what mood I'm in. You know, if I want it to be chewy or crunchy, uh, I like the sea salt on there. And then it's all the other factor that I can't control is, you know, how fresh is it going to be at one of the three bakeries that I that I frequent. Um, so a little bit of roll of a dice there. But I always know there's a, there's a few spots like I always know it's going to be a good cookie. And then it's like, is today going to be, is it going to be melty and warm today? Or, you know, did they make it this morning and I got in at two o'clock? Um, so that's always part of the adventure. Any plans to make your own line of uh, cookies? Phil Garmin um, cookie line? Yes and no, I, I, I do already. I have, uh, so part of the thing is like the, the cookie thing, the way it started was just really organic and pure and accidental. So I was writing, uh, when I, I have, a, I have an English degree. When I graduated, uh, I, I wrote for, you know, all these low-level American teams for no money. And part of the way I got by was, was freelance writing. So I had a blog oh, really? for Bicycling Magazine back then. Um so this is like 2009, 2010. Um, and it was, uh, so I, I think I forget how I was sort of like, again, I always like cookies, but everybody likes cookies. So there's nothing special about that. But I, I went, I went to a race and I had a, a rough weekend cause they all were back then. Uh, and I was like, this sucked, this sucked. But if you're ever here, I highly recommend a great cookie here. So that was like kind of how I ended it. Uh, of just like this, you know, I didn't want to sad any, I, I really enjoyed this cookie in this town that, that you've never heard of and won't visit. Um, and then at some point, like, you know, a few weeks later, someone was at a race and was like, Hey, I saw you like cookies. And I, you know, I, I know this place here, I got you one. And, uh, so I would like, you know, would tweet that to my 500 followers at the time, like, Oh, this guy, you know, got me a cookie. Um, and then I started, I 
had a page on my website that's still up of uh, cookie ratings. So I just like my top, my favorite cookies in the US uh, would just be kind of ranked uh, and it would move around. And I, I pretended it was really competitive. Um, <laughs> and so that that cookie thing, like over you know the next eight or nine years kind of snowballed to uh, my last year racing, the, the bus would pull up in a parking lot and there'd be five people outside with plates of cookies for me, which was just the most awesome, pure thing in the world. Just strangers like bringing me cookies um, and, and they weren't poisoned and I ate them all, uh, which, <laughs> the, the team, I share with the mechanics and stuff, but I, I don't think I ever like threw one out. Um, and so I, so I didn't want to like, you know, I, I wouldn't want to get sponsored by Oreo and be like, Hey everybody, I like cookies, buy these. That would ruin the purity of it. I think it's just, it's too beautiful to do that. Um, but what I did do for the, for the 2020, um, we had to cancel my, my cookie fondo in Malibu, um, we, everything got canceled that year. Um, so instead I had the idea of, we do a bake your own cookie fondo. So people could sign up. It was, it was way cheaper than doing the real event, but I, we sent, uh, we sent recipes to do. I sent some route guidelines. If you lived in LA, I like, here's the routes that I think would be fun for you to do. So I kind of like curated the whole weekend experience of, you know, here's where you get this dinner. Here's where you do that. And that included, uh, packets of cookie mix. So you could bake your own cookies at home. Um, and people really liked that. So we kind of continued to make that. And so it's philscookies.com is our, uh, we have like a subscription cookie mix service. So I'm not, it's not cookies. You've got to make it. But the, part of the thing too, is like, they're going to be fresh. You go to the grocery store and you're getting a stale cookie and it's going to live on your counter for four days. And it's no good. Uh, so here's like their packets. They make, you know, like six to, to 10 cookies and you eat them at once. You put one in your bag for, for every ride every day. Um, yeah, and this has been like a fun little business and people get a subscription. So you get like two packets a month, uh, just show up at your door. Uh, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sell cookies, but I've been selling like a kit, uh, which is, which is a good in-between for me. I don't feel bad about it. Okay. Um, talking about cookies, I know you, as well as being a successful YouTuber and a Strava KOM um, expert, you're also organizing a Grand Fondo. Mm -hmm. I guess there's some, lots of climbing and lots of cookies on that uh, event. Yeah, that's a, that is basically the <laughs> summary. <laughs> the, uh, so it's, it, it raised money for No Kid Hungry, uh, which does a really good job. Um, nice. There's a, there's a group of cyclists that, uh, that do a fundraiser for them called Chef Cycle. And so it's uh, a lot of chefs. I kind of met it through, I, I, I got involved with this through a chef friend uh, who, who I used to ride bikes with. He got into mountain biking and downhill uh, too scared to ride with him anymore. But um but they have this, they do an annual ride and it's like a bunch of celebrity chefs and they raise money for No Kid Hungry. Um, so I, I kind of teamed up with them. So we do, they, they cook this incredible post-ride meal, just like a handful of, of like really high-end LA restaurant uh, partners cook at the, at the end of this. So you're, you're sweaty and disgusting and you're eating like Michelin star food wow. um, in a tent. Um, and, and so we have cookies every 10 to 15 miles um, and the other part of it was like, I, I came to Los Angeles and, you know, if you come here as a tourist, you, you get stuck in traffic a hundred times, uh, you go to Hollywood Boulevard and you're accosted by homeless people. Um, and until I lived here, I just had no idea how incredible the riding was, but the, the section of, uh, Hollywood has these beautiful Hills and Malibu more, more particularly has, uh, there's a kind of a stretch from the, you know, the coast, the, the Pacific ocean, um, and the beaches there. And there's Mulholland highway is this beautiful twisty road at the top that every car commercial you've ever seen is this, is this road. Like you've seen Mulholland a hundred times. You don't know it. Um, 
And then to connect the PCH to Mohan, there's just a million little hills that, that go up and, and there's you have no business in there unless you're one of the rich people who lives in there. Um, and the riding is, you know, it's a 10 way tie for the best in the world, but it is it is incredible. Um, and it's been really fun to kind of like use that event to help get the word out uh, for, for folks who, who live in L.A. and maybe hadn't ridden there or more importantly, like tourists to come out and like, hey, the at this point in January, February, it's just Canadian tourists just fly down and, and ride uh, in Malibu because they're they're just trying to get out of the cold. And here's an awesome mm-hmm. place to go. So just sharing like great places to ride is a, uh, is a big passion and, and where I live uh, is a good opportunity for it. So that's, that's the main thing with fun. We opened registration yesterday. Um, so we're, it is on for this year. We've got the venues and the permits and uh, that was, that was touch and go, but uh, all, all's good and it's going to happen. And I'm super excited to get back to it after two years off. Brilliant. I'll put a link to that down below and hopefully maybe I can, uh, if my diary is clear, get out there myself in October. And um, you wouldn't think LA would be a, a good riding. I mean, everybody knows like the freeway and the traffic yeah. and you wouldn't think it'd be a good cycling paradise really no but, but it, it it is and like I'd, I'd had teammates come every year remember like davide formolo came through and like he just wanted to go to universal with his girlfriend and and he looked at the he was like oh <laughs> it's like oh yeah this is okay i see it um but yeah you don't believe it until you're here yeah sounds good so that's keeping you busy and you've also launched your own cycling team as well jukebox cycling um, yeah so what's what's that all about then can you tell us about that um, so it's not exactly my team. Uh, it's uh, the it, Jukebox's team, uh, and they just so they sponsor me. Okay. Um, but they are they are my title sponsor. But I don't have any. I'm not the boss of anything. Um, but I think they they sort of just noticed what I was talking about before of like uh, to sponsor a professional team is expensive, and depending on your level, the the value can be questionable. Um, and then there's all these people who are just doing cool things on bikes. Um, either on YouTube or on social media or, or racing, but, uh, but races that like aren't getting the media. Um, and so I think he, he jukebox particularly, you know, they're a fun brand there. It's a printing and sticker company out of Vancouver. Uh, so like posters and calendars, just like anything you can imagine being printed, um, business cards, stuff like that. But, uh, they wanted to get into cycling and, and I think he just looked at like, you know, I could spend this much on a, a world tour team, or I could spend this much and just like collect people who are doing fun stuff, who deserve support, who, who yeah. represent uh, my brand. And I, I hope there's more of that in the sport. I hope it keeps going in that direction. Cause I think it's, it's sort of needed. And the folks that he picked up are all just like really doing cool stuff with it. Um, so there's a handful of YouTubers and gravel racers, uh, male and females. So you can also have a team that's like as diverse as you want. Um, but to me, like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be fast to be valuable to a brand. Um, and I think the, I think the world is going to come to people who are creative and fun and do cool stuff and, and ride bikes. Yeah, I think you're right. The scene is definitely changing from that traditional racing team to something which isn't easy to find by tradition, is it really? Like, right, right. You just got to pick them out. Yeah. That sounds good. I, well, I look forward to seeing the exploits that team over uh, the next few months and, and what you get up to. Um, if I can get one final climbing tip from you what would be like the, the the biggest tip you give to anybody who's struggling on climbs or just doesn't feel they're a natural climber what would be one bit of advice you give them to kind of uh, give them a bit of extra motivation the the advice that i give well a it's just do it a lot uh is the main that's how you get better at anything um and like people ask for tips and i just i i, I did an instagram post the other day where like someone someone kudos to ride that i'd uploaded and it, it I, at some point I connected all my training to, to Strava. So it uploaded like every workout I did as a pro. 
and there was this there was this ride and it was like uh my, so my coach gave me the workout of do 360 to 410 watts for this many minutes at this cadence and i and i the the terrain that i did it on the climb was too steep i wasn't able to hit the cadence goals and the speed at the same time and i like wrote a paragraph responding to that and thinking like maybe we could do this kind of workout instead and and my my realization was like that's that's what makes you fast it's just like many years of that level of dedication <laughs> and i i uh i was teammates with dylan ben barla in 2016 and we that was i did roubaix with him uh we had very different roubaix experiences uh, but he finished 19th and i wrote I, I wrote in my blog back then uh like the end of the paragraph was you know like i i knew i was retiring at that point or i had an idea um but dylan was 21 22 and i was like next year Dylan will be top 10 someday he'll win like i i wrote that in 2016 and and then i was watching it yesterday and i was kind of tearing up so i was just thinking like all the stuff that i did from 2016 to now Dylan did one thing. <laughs> like Dylan was tasting this that whole time and he knew he could do it and he did it. And, and that's, that's what it takes to, to perform. Um, and that's like really a beautiful thing. We have to watch the fruition of I'm getting emotional now. Um, he's a super nice guy, but the, uh, <laughs> but so that's, that's one thing is just that that's the real answer um, for the, the, the micro answer for people who are just looking to get better at their climb and not dedicate their entire decade to it. Uh, like, like Dylan, which I respect because that's a lot um pacing a climb the the move is uh the way i like to do it is i divide it into thirds uh so what i found is if i if i take the first third and i'm and the whole time i'm thinking go easy okay. uh and then the middle third i'm thinking go steady and the last third now is the time i'm actually letting myself go hard i find if that's the perception of my effort the power file is actually flat because uh, it feels easy when you start but yep. uh but that's sort of the how it, how it loads up in your body. Um, and so I think that would be the best tip is to, is to perceive your, their perceived exertion versus your actual effort. And, and the, the dividing into thirds, um, has been very effective for me, uh, for, for just general pacing and intervals, and all that stuff. Okay. That's a good tip of thirds. I might try it myself on a, there we go. On a climb this week. So, uh, yeah. uh, brilliant Phil, uh, a pleasure to chat to you. Thanks for taking the time to chat to us today. And, um, Absolutely. it sounds like your retirement is going pretty well, to be honest. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm much happier now. I've, I've, I've found a place. <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's good. Well, I look forward to uh, just following you on Instagram and social media and, uh, and how Thanks many more KWMs me. you can get. Cool. Yeah, thank Cheers. You. Thank you. So that was a fascinating insight into Phil Garman's worst retirement ever, which doesn't sound all that bad to me. An interesting experience as a professional cyclist and now a popular YouTuber, bagging Strava KOMs and sharing his love for climbing. Check out details of his Grand Fondo and his cycling team in the notes down below. But that's all for now. Thank you for listening.